you're listening to You Might Have a Point. This podcast will feature interviews with guests who specialize in one or more of a broad range of subjects, including philosophy, psychology, politics, public policy, journalism, and culture. The basic idea of the show is that, even when you disagree with someone on some things, it can often be worth it to find areas of common ground by saying, you know, you might have a point. If you want to learn more about the podcast or the blog that accompanies it, you can visit www.youmighthaveapoint.com. I am pleased to welcome Bill Sher to the podcast today. Bill writes for Political and Real Clear, Real Clear Politics, and he is also the co-host of the DMZ on blog, bloggingheads.tv and has just launched a new history podcast called When America Worked. Bill Sher, welcome to You Might Have a Point. Great to be here. So I'd like to start off the podcast by just asking a very kind of broad general question, which is, and the approach that you take to your commentary, where do you see yourself ideologically as well as kind of the overall ethos or what you're trying to accomplish with what you're doing? Well, I, I still call myself a liberal. I've not, I, I started blogging in 2002 uh, on the blog Liberal Oasis with the intention of sort of rehabilitating the word. And at that time, you know, you know, liberal was in the doghouse uh, from the right. Now liberals serve in the doghouse from the left. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm still sticking with it. And I've never liked to call myself moderate or centrist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I still don't. I mean, I don't, I don't think they're accurate reflections of my, my views, but I have in the course of the Trump years, uh, developed a increasing concern and antipathy towards polarization, uh, which has uh, renewed or or created, I think, a interest in mind in bipartisanship, uh, which if someone wanted to tag me as a moderate because I have I have praised the value of bipartisanship. You know, I, I, it's hard for me to uh, deny that. But I still would hold that. You know, bipartisanship isn't wonderful for bipartisanship's sake, mm-hmm. because it, just because a, a proposal is bipartisan doesn't, doesn't mean it's good. There's plenty of bad legislation or ineffectual legislation that's that's nominally bipartisan. Uh, but I do think there is real value in having the country, having everybody in the country feel like they have a stake in the outcome. Right. And not having every election feel like one side wins and one side loses in total. And if that continues over time, that that does seem to create some severe problems for democracy. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that that is one area where I have definitely modified my ideological positioning. I see. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I would say it's less about policy preferences so much as um, a willingness to get things done and make sure that both sides have a stake in the, in the yeah. Fight. And as far as policy preferences go, you know, I, I think I have developed over time. I guess two things I think they have developed with me over time since I started, you know, writing online literally 18 years ago. Um, I'm a bit more policy agnostic. I'm a, I, I feel less adamant about one particular policy over another. Okay. Um, Cause I'm more, I think aware of, my limitations as uh, as as an all knowing person. So I mean, I I want to prevent global warming. I'm not going to go to the mat for carbon tax versus cap and trade mm-hmm. versus 
Green New Deal, as far as what is the exact right perfect policy, uh, I want the policy that's going to get to the president's desk and become law sure. so we can so we can move the ball forward. So if you, if you can get the votes for approach X, great, let's try it and see how it goes and then make adjustments along the way. So that's a, I don't think I was in that exact place when I started writing uh, you know, 18 years ago. And on top of that, that makes me, you know, I, probably earlier on, I might've been inclined to say things like, you know, sure, I'd be for X if we, if we could get it, but um, I'll settle for Y. And now I'm a little less inclined to assume that the more pure X is better than the modest Y. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there are things about pure X that aren't so great in practice, um, or aren't or wouldn't work as cleanly as advertised. I used to, I used to come in with that same level of assumption that I might have earlier on in my days. Okay, makes sense. Uh, so, I just finished listening to your first uh, episode of your When America Worked podcast, and I there was one line in there which stuck out to me, which um, I'm pretty sure was your characterization. You said, we as a people are much quicker to laud sweeping policies than careful compromises. I'm just yes, definitely, definitely my, my own, my own words. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was just curious, uh, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but how would you defend that position if someone was arguing the opposite? Well, um, yeah, so just so you know, everyone understands the context. My my initial episode of When America Worked is about the creation of the United Nations, mm-hmm. and uh, that was particularly in reference to an element of the UN Charter, where uh, the Secretary of State at the time, Edward Stettinius, was trying to craft a deal around the Trusteeship Council. And the trusteeship, the Trusteeship Council was what do you do with parts of the world that were under a colonial arrangement mm. and are no longer, uh, how, how are they to, how are they to be governed? Do you automatically give them independence? Do the, uh, are, do, do you shift the colonial uh, paternal arrangement from one country to another as, as usually happens after, after wars, you know, they're trying to avoid extending colonialism. Uh, and so there was a debate over, should we say the objective here is self-determination or independence, which uh, independence is sort of the bolder characterization than self, self, self-determination. Uh, and he basically created a compromise where both words were used in different contexts. Uh, and the people that really wanted decolonization thought this was a, a toothless compromise. America was being hypocritical. There were caveats for Pacific islands that America wanted for military bases. Um, the British were keeping their colonial arrangements off the top. You know, it's what are we really accomplishing here? Uh, but getting that word independence in the charter, um, you know, gave it a, a more legitimacy. Gave, right. Had it be a North star for people. Better than nothing. Yeah, exactly. It was definitely better than nothing. And there was a wave of decolonization that followed that some do credit um, the, the UN charter uh, for playing a, a catalyzing role. Uh, so, but this wasn't, you know, widely applauded in the moment for being this amazing deal and has never really been praised in even the in the years after. So you take something like the Affordable Care Act, which is very much a compromise, uh, and you still have people on the left saying this is too corporate, this is too incremental, there's still too many people without insurance. Um, 
this isn't so hot. Uh, and it's not that it can't be improved over time in, in various ways, but it's a hell of a leap forward from where we were. Uh, and it's creating, it's creating a, a government framework for there being a, a, a central body that's uh, creating a moral obligation for everyone to have insurance. Uh, and you know, it may be that there'll be some other bill down the line that finishes the job and that bill will get all the credit. <laughs> Um, whereas if you didn't get the Affordable Care Act first, you probably wouldn't have gotten there. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess if I were aligned with you in terms of policy, I would agree with that. But I guess I have a different <laughs> preference in terms of the role of the federal government fair uh, enough, in terms enough. of healthcare. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I I did I did think that line about lauding sweeping policies was interesting, though. I think there might be uh, a sort of distinctly American uh, preference for bold language, um, you know, going back to our founding, just sort of hyperbole sometimes to the extreme and the absurd, um, and including right up to now with what you see with um, Trump and his quote unquote legal team <laughs> making claims. You know, uh, it's, uh, I guess, we also love spectacle as a people, I guess, mm -hmm. would you say? Is that about right? I think that's all true. And also, when you're telling stories of history, um, anything that has sort of a grand climax is going to make for a better story. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, anything that involves you, take something like the progressive income tax. This is a pretty big deal, progressive income tax. We didn't always have it. It has greatly shaped how the country is, is run in the last 100 years. And almost nobody can tell you how it came to be. Um, uh, you know, partly that's because not everybody likes it. <laughs> not everybody likes paying taxes not uh, and their playability even like having a progressive element to it. Uh, but, uh, you know, to tell a long story short, it was part of a tariff reform bill in President Taft's uh, tenure. Uh, and if you know a lot about you know, early American history, you know, there have been tariff battles forever. So much of what divided um, first Democrats and Whigs and then Democrats and Republicans was, was tariffs. Uh, and it was a very messy thing for Taft to get in the middle of to try to find a compromise for it. Uh, and he was not praised for doing it. It was, it was beat up by all sides. But what he, part of the deal was that he was lowering the tariffs in part and replacing some of that revenue with the progressive income tax, which had to be, uh, which needed a constitutional amendment because it was struck, uh, an idea of a progressive tax was struck down by the court several years prior. Uh, Taft didn't want to do something provocative and challenge the court to to flip, to flip on the subject. So he, he proposed a constitutional amendment. The conservatives said, sure, it'll never get ratified. The progressives said, this is terrible, it'll never get ratified. Uh, but he got ratified. He then loses re-election because everybody hated the rest of the tariff bill. It wasn't the only reason, but it was part of it. Uh, and then Woodrow Wilson passes the law that actually creates the first income tax. So the extent anybody knows anything about the subject, Wilson gets the credit slash blame for it. I see. Uh, but it was this really awkward compromise that got the tax in there in the first place. And it's a it's a messy, complicated story with not a great uh, Hero, heartwarming villain, finish. Yeah. And so nobody tells the story. Makes sense. So that's a 
one of the things you're trying to do with your when america worked podcast exactly yeah exactly i, I probably give away an episode here but oh. yeah, so be it. <laughs> no that's <laughs> I, I got the exclusive preview um <laughs> so uh bringing us back to the present day i think uh would it be fair to say that you've been uh, critical of the defund the police slogan uh i have um and it seems, you know, I mean, there's two ways to criticize it. There's there's both on the, the politics and on the substance. Um, and I think politically, it really shouldn't be a matter of dispute anymore. Well, I, 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 let me ret- slightly retract that. Because you can look at, actually, there's three ways you can look at it. You can look at it politically and substantively. And but within politically, there is national politics and there is municipal politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some defenders of it say, hey, there are certain cities which have reduced their police budgets and tried to route money into social services. And so even if there was this national backlash, even if it dragged down certain House Democrats, um, you know, that is a necessary cost in pushing an idea that's bold and aggressive uh, that wasn't on the table before. And so that's, that's not an illegitimate point um i think it i think the jury is very much out whether a whole lot of municipalities are going to do that Mm -hmm. um the majority of major cities have not done that so far so you you, one could argue hey you started zero now you got a few you you're on your way um but you know the question still remains is that going to be a non-stop trajectory towards further defunding uh, or not. And be and because there, I think there is a pretty obvious political political baggage that has that a lot of Democrats have carried, it's probably going to be a lot harder to for those who wanted to fund to build on those successes in, in more and more cities because people are getting more and more skittish about, about the concept. And it isn't, I mean, this goes back to my earlier point, you know, if your ultimate goal is to reform police so they are not operating in a systematically racist manner, mm-hmm. if, if that is the end goal, which I think there's pretty wide support for that goal. Um, Amongst Democrats and progressives or, or broadly. I, I think beyond. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know there is a resistance to the term systematic racism right. amongst Republicans. You, you saw that in the election. You saw it mo- most pointedly in the Iowa Senate race. Uh, Joni Ernst used that to tag Teresa Greenfield as calling cops racist, mm-hmm. like individual cops racist, saying if, you, if you're saying systematically racist, you're saying every cop is racist, which is not what the term is meant to mean. Right. Uh, but I do think a lot of, I mean, and, that, and that's that's part of your college-educated, non-college cultural divide mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. I think the term, you know, comes from a college-educated activist place, and, and it lands differently from someone who isn't part of that world and then can be interpreted um, somewhat, in, in some cases, I think, willfully misinterpreted uh, by certain politicians, and that trickles down. Uh, so, but I but I do think you saw after George Floyd, very, very sure. widespread support for saying police shouldn't be racist, police right. shouldn't kill black people, right. uh, police shouldn't use unnecessary force. Um, and, then the, and then the debate is how do, you, how do you get from point A to point B? Uh, and it's not the case that the only way to do that 
is by either a abolishing the police, which for some that's what defunding means, right. or b by partially routing some funds from police departments into other social services, so police are not doing things that they supposedly don't need to be involved in. That's the more uh, that, that's only intended to be a a a a softer interpretation of defund the police that's not meant to be as antagonistic um but still has a lot of detractors uh even that is not the only way to stop police from doing racist bad things Mm -hmm. uh so uh i i i think we we should get back to a place where we're we're starting from the consensus point <laughs> let's get back to the place where we all agree on the end goal and then talk about uh potential strategies that we could further agree on we, we've already seen that defund the police is not that there is not broad agreement right. uh on how to get there and you're not even seeing uh the majority i mean you know in one sense you know most big cities are democrat run uh, and so maybe you don't need Republican support right. to have successes there, but you're still seeing a lot of backlash within those cities uh, and hesitation on the part of a lot of cities. So I, I, I think any fair reading of the landscape was, hey, go back to the drawing board here. Makes sense. Um, I think in terms of electoral strategy for uh, Democrats running for a federal office, you had an interesting quote um, in your one of your tweets. Um, which was, well, let me see how I can set this up here. Um, basically, uh, Kevin Robillard, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, said uh, one important point Daniel Marins makes, Republicans linked to Democrats Republicans linked Democrats to defund the police through outside liberal groups, including groups that didn't really have anything to do with police reform, but nonetheless embraced the slogan. And um, then you responded to that. Th- this three degrees of separation bit only works by perception. If voters perceive defund police slash socialism, et cetera, is the heart of the democratic party. And you are an, you are an ill-defined down ballot D you can get tagged with, with it easily. You avoid getting tagged by sharply defining yourself. How much do you think that that is the lesson that Democrats uh, running for federal office are going to take away from uh, 2020? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't know exactly what, what the surviving house dems are going to do uh i i suspect they will ha- i expect that will be part of their takeaway uh, a lot of them tried look look if you're if you're a moderate democrat house democrat and you you're winning in a purple to red district you need to get the votes of both you know Partisan Democrats, which you know, exist everywhere. There's there's no part of the country that doesn't have any progressive liberal Democrat. Uh, you need to get those folks to show up, and you need folks in the middle, folks who are more moderate Democrat, folks who are independent, maybe some soft R's. Um, so it's a balancing act. And the general way a lot of House Democrats in those districts ran for office in the first place in 2018 and tried to remain in 2020 was by keeping their head down and avoiding controversial stances that would drive a wedge through their big tent coalitions. So you saw this articulate very plainly you know, in an interview that the Washington Post's uh, Dave Weigel did with uh, Ashley Hinson, who beat Abby Finkenauer in Iowa 1. Uh, and 
uh, Abby Finkenauer is getting hit with defund the police early and her initial reaction was to be silent, to try to kind of let the controversy go away and move on to the next thing. And only when that became untenable did in, that, in one of the debates, Hinson was pushing her in a debate. And that's when Finkenauer said, this is a radical idea. I don't support it. But in Hinson's telling, she was, you know, a few steps too slow in doing that. Mm. Uh, and if she came out right off the bat and distanced herself from it, it might've been a different, different story. Uh, and I, I think that is the case for a lot of the, those Democrats. Uh, they didn't, they didn't hug it. They and they hoped that they wouldn't that it wouldn't drag them down, but by trying to soft pedal it, they got stuck with it anyway. It's very akin to Michael Dukakis in 1988, uh, when Dukakis was getting hit with all sorts of smears. His gut response was, "Who's going to believe this? Uh, why should I give this oxygen by you know by battling it and drawing attention to it? You know, you know, essentially getting you know you, you get into a fire the pig, you get dirty and the pig likes it kind of mentality. Uh, and that works better if you're a very well-known commodity already. Biden can go out there and say, look at me, am I a socialist? No. And people largely accepted right. that because he's been around for 40 plus years. Uh, if, you, if you're a house member for two years, you really probably haven't developed that kind of bond. Now, certain folks may have because they were big names before they got in, but a lot of them were fresh faces. They were the alternative to whoever was the incumbent in there. Uh, they hadn't built up those ties. I mean, even to like Donna Shalala, I mean, Donna Shalala was, you know, HHS secretary. She was president of the University of Miami. And so I could, you still can understand her thinking, hey, people here know me. <laughs> They're not going to think I'm a socialist. Uh, she, so this, she was, and so she's Congresswoman in Florida 27. This is Southern Florida, heavily Cuban population. Uh, but she's white and she doesn't even speak Spanish, though she won two years ago. Uh, and, and it, and it still was a Democrat district. It was a Biden, it was a Clinton Biden district, although the margin narrowed. Uh, she gets, does an interview in October which is being asked about being attacked as a socialist. And she says, I think it's so funny when I get attacked as a socialist, I'm a pragmatic socialist. Then she goes on to say, I'm the farthest thing from a socialist. I'm a capitalist. Uh-huh. So you so you read the whole thing. It's, it's obvious. She just made a goof, right? She didn't mean to say she was a socialist, right. but her opponent took pragmatic socialist, dropped that in an ad. Yep. Uh, and clearly had an impact because because she she lost and ran ran worse. I think she I think she ran worse than Biden, if I remember correctly. Okay. Like Biden, Biden won and she didn't. Right. Uh, so if she was as well known and well bonded as Biden, that would not have worked. Makes I sense. can only conclude it worked because she wasn't uh, she didn't have that same kind of community tie. Got it. So, so to go back to the original point, uh, I, I I do think that that puts more pressure on those on those House Democrats who are still in. Some of them won, but maybe with narrow margins. It's still a tight D versus R district. They're gonna. They have more incentive to say, "Look, I'm gonna put it out there very clearly. I'm not a socialist. I'm not for abolishing the police. I'm not for this new thing that AOC has put on the table. Uh, I'm my own person." Because, and that may come with some risk. That's gonna depress that base vote. But they're gonna say to themselves, "I don't have another choice here because I'm definitely dead in the water if I lose the middle." Makes sense. So I want to go now to uh, chances for compromise in the Senate. Uh, you posted last night a shareable that. 
This is the point of the podcast where I forgot to say what a shareable is. A shareable is a YouTube series hosted by Bill. You can find out more at shareable.com. That is spelled S-C-H-E-R-A-B-L-E.com. It's basically arguing that the um, first first signs of uh, getting COVID relief done were um, an indication of how bipartisan compromise might be accomplished in the future on on other matters. Why don't you go ahead and sort of make that case make that case and sum here? Sure. No, no, we don't know what's going to happen with this bill yet. So obviously, I might be getting ahead of myself here, but. Uh, I think what you saw this week, and we're talking in early December, you know, 2020, uh, when you know Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, who's not generally known as as moderate as those other those other three, mm-hmm. you know, joined up with Joe Manchin and Mark Warner. Um, there could be another Democrat in there that I'm, that I'm forgetting, um, saying, "Look, we want." a COVID relief bill that's $908 billion. This is almost double the size of what Mitch McConnell has on the table, but this is the bipartisan, but it's less than what Pelosi and Schumer were asking for. This is the middle. This is the compromise. Come come to us. And one, you know, they got a lot of media attention for doing that, which followed by two, Pelosi and Schumer coming down from their position to where they are. Uh, now, we don't know if three is going to happen, which is Mitch McConnell agreeing or at least agreeing to put it on the floor right. and see what happens before Biden is is inaugurated. But that is how it should work or how it could work. Uh, I mean, we we did not see a lot of this. We did not see a lot of attempts by a small group of bipartisan senators taking a leadership role, right. having the proposal making a lot of getting a lot of media attention for it and bringing people to them by creating a bully pulpit where they occupy the seemingly reasonable position. And then you, you are therefore unreasonable if you are not on board. Yeah. Uh, that is uh, the only way moderates in the two parties can have influence is by doing that. You know, I, I argued and also by getting it out there first, by st- that's right. Yeah, yeah. A well, lot of. I mean, I mean, I mean, they could go last. I mean, they, they, uh, they could let the two sides fight it out for a while and then come in afterwards. Mm-hmm. But you know, if Mitch McConnell is still the majority leader after the Georgia runoffs, which is certainly possible, mm-hmm. he has all he has almost total control of the Senate floor at that point. So you know. And if he doesn't, if Ossoff and Warnock win and Chuck Schumer's majority leader, they're still not eliminating the filibuster. So because Manchin said he wouldn't and Sinema said she wouldn't. So therefore, it can't happen. Um, That means you need at least 10 Republicans in in addition to a unified Democratic Party, which in itself is not a a given on all issues. Um, So you're going to have to have some bipartisanship one way or the other. I think getting 10 Republicans will be easier than getting Mitch McConnell on most things. Uh, But if you have to get Mitch McConnell... The only way that's going to happen is if there is some bipartisan proposal that is perceived as the reasonable middle that puts political pressure on the rest of the Republicans to get on board. Mm -hmm. The McConnell calculation in the Obama years was if I block Obama as much as possible and he is an ineffective president in his first term, he will get he will get blamed for the ineffectiveness, not me and my party for the obstruction. And he will then lose reelection. And that was half true. It certainly helped him in the midterms, uh, but didn't quite get them all the way for re-election. Uh, and 
the only way to make him change that calculation is for the cost of obstruction to be steeper than the cost, uh, than, than the potential benefit of, you know, thwarting uh, the Democratic uh, president. Um, and the only thing with that happens if there is a reasonable middle position that is widely perceived as the way to go. Uh, and yep. and and it, it, once Biden is, is sworn in, he will potentially turbocharge any such proposal. It won't just be the senators. You have the president there too, saying, "Hey, I'm for this. Yep. I'm for where these these few Republicans are for. I'm willing to come down from where I am. The only person blocking this here is you, Mitch McConnell. So you better yeah. get on board." Yeah, I do see the potential of that happening. I guess you could see uh, what you've outlined as like a as a framework for one way to do it. But on the other hand. You can think, well, this is COVID relief. It's an immediate thing that needs to get done mm -hmm. that will very much paint uh, Congress and maybe Republicans, particularly, in a negative light. Um, so, given that it's a, this is just sort of one example, still very early on. How much do you think the, um, you know, tides of negative polarization in general will prevent more substantive policies on more difficult issues like immigration or healthcare? Well, certainly the emergency element of the COVID situation is um, is, is, a, is a legislative lubricant uh, mm -hmm. that may not be there for other such issues. Uh, but you got to start somewhere. So mm -hmm. if, if, you know, if Collins, Murkowski, Romney, Cassidy say, hey, this worked, I, I have a lot of influence here. I can get stuff done that I want to do through this model. Perhaps I will try it for other issues or other other Republicans say, hey, they, they got to get their way by doing they got a lot of glory by doing that. Maybe I can get some glory if I do that. Um, now, granted, a lot of those Republicans are in very Republican states and they may not see it that way. But to that anybody does, having a successful example is what you can build upon. Um, I think you would need to have the additional factor of corporate pressure mm. for other to get that a, a if not an identical but a similar sense of urgency on other issues mm -hmm. uh i think you would need to have fossil fuel companies say look we we can't go on the next 30 years with uncertainty yep. in our climate related regulatory regime we want some rules of the road that and we're, we're ready to adapt. We're already diversifying our energy mix. We can still make money with renewables in that mix. We can, we can uh, limit or even zero out some fossil fuels over a long horizon. Mm -hmm. We just need a structure and a plan for us to do that. Uh, so, hey, Romney, hey, Murkowski in oil-rich Alaska, hey, Susan Collins, um, can you get a few other people on board so we can do this? We'll 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 put our shoulder into it. We'll put some money into it and give you guys cover. Uh, immigration is one where corporations were already on board, you know, in 2013 because they right. want to have a steady flow of of low wage labor. Um, and that might create some tension with Democrats who don't want worker exploitation. But they they got through those in 2013 and got something through the Senate. Just got it was a dead letter in the House. Uh, so that's where I think the model can be replicated. Healthcare, I'm less optimistic about. Sure. Uh, certainly, in part because those hard compromises already occurred. I mean, you had that corporate buy-in in the front end of this. You, the pharmaceuticals got behind the initial 
uh, Affordable Care Act because they got off pretty light in that deal. And then once it was baked in the cake and Republicans tried to repeal it, it's the insurers that said, whoa, don't go, don't tear this thing apart. Mm-hmm. We got it. We got a, a framework here that we're functioning under. You're going to make things chaos if you, if you if you upend it. So don't do it. And they had a very big role in getting McCain and Murkowski and Collins to um, uh, subvert right. that plan. Uh so, uh, so public option, which is sort of which was what Biden ran upon, is what a lot of progressives want, short of single payer. That's an existential threat to insurance companies, and they're not going to roll over for that. And it, there's there's no way to split the baby on that one. Makes sense. Uh, so, you know, maybe there could be things done that are that are you know fine tuning of ACA. Um, uh, but I, my my guess is, so I think I think you find some very minimal things on that front. Or things done on on the executive branch basis, just through HHS under the current law. I don't think you're gonna have anything really big and bold in the healthcare front. So I like to close with a brainstorming session of sorts, and then a closing question. And I guess two uh, elements of the brainstorming session. And this is I like to think about structural reforms. So, um, and I I think you might have said something about this. I think it's uh, we're already not getting rid of the filibuster in the Senate, but I do just as someone who likes to see policies that make sense um, get through Congress. Um, two things annoy me about uh, the way things are currently done. One is that you have the, um, and now I'm blanking on the word, um, the reconciliation being used as a means of getting bills through with only 50 votes, which mm-hmm. sometimes resulting in contorted regulation because of the um, limitation that it has to be related to the budget. Um, so I guess, I don't know if you know enough about Senate rules to answer this, but is first, is there a way to make it so that whatever the number of votes is to get closure, it's the same number of votes to do reconciliation so that there's not this sort of weird incentive to make just what ends up being bad policy for everyone because of this sort of quirk of the rules? Well, I mean, Senate can change the rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the, the rules are not in the Constitution or right. out law. So uh, if, I mean, and right now, we've, the way the rules are supposed to work is it's a two-thirds change to change rules. Of course, now we have what's called the nuclear option, where a right. simple majority can overrule the parliamentarian, uh, and that has been used to lower the threshold uh, for executive branch appointments and, and judges. Uh, so... Uh, I don't think you're going to see a simple majority use the nuclear option to take away power from a simple right. majority right. in budget reconciliation. Uh, so you're gonna you're gonna have budget reconciliation. That's always going to exist. Uh, and because it's 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 one of the few workarounds. It's one of the few ways. If, if there is relentless obstruction from a minority, this is your one opening. To get around that, and it's not as you mentioned, it's got constrictions. Mm-hmm. You can't do anything you want through budget reconciliation, at least as it currently stands, unless the, unless those rules get changed. Yep. Um, which was sort of what Bernie Sanders was sort of floating. Bernie Sanders was saying at first he didn't want to get rid of the filibuster because he was worried it was going to bite Democrats in the butt later on, and then some of his people were like, "You can't get anything you want passed without without getting rid of the filibuster. What are you talking about, guy?" And they said, "Oh well, I'll I'll expand the rules of budget reconciliation." To make it easier to get my other stuff done. That was what he was essentially running on. Um, but I don't even, that's not even going to happen at this point, I don't think. Um, you only can do budget reconciliation once within a budget process. You have to pass a budget resolution. 
mm-hmm. which is not law. It's sort of like a guideline of what your budget, you know, ceilings are going to be for for various, you know, agency areas. And the budget reconciliation bill follows the resolution. Now, uh, you can, in theory, ram through two resolu- resolutions for a, a fiscal year. You could, in theory, ram through two res- resolutions in a year for two different fiscal years. Um, but generally speaking, it's it's sort of a once a year proposition right. at best. Some years there is no budget resolution. There are years where the Congress has punted on even doing it. Yep. Um, uh, so if Warnock and Ossoff win the runoffs and Democrats have a 50-50 control of the Senate with Harris as the tiebreaker, they could pass a budget reconciliation bill. If literally every Democrat is on board, they could not sacrifice one Democrat right. unless they manage to pull in a Collins or a Mikowski or a Romney. Um, uh, and there will be a lot of pressure to try to jam as much stuff as they can into that thing. Hey, this is our one shot. I mean, even you know, that's how Affordable Care Act got got passed in part, and they jammed in um, uh, student debt relief, uh, student uh, debt expansion, relief expansion in that bill. And I think I think one other education related thing, if I remember correctly. Um, but they couldn't get uh, cl- climate change legislation through that way. The Demo- there are enough uh, fossil fuel state Democrats that prevented that from happening. Uh, so people like Manchin and Cinema and others are going to say, hey, I'm not going to let you put anything in this in this reconciliation bill. You got to keep it more narrow. And yep. that would be an, an internal fight amongst Democrats. What would get to make it into this this one vehicle? So second proposal, which I have, which has a low chance of happening, but I like to think about anyway, is, um, you know, I think liberals might have a point when they point out sort of the uh, uh, unfair structure of the Senate, but I don't think that the answer is to change the way the Senate is elected. One proposal that I've heard some conservatives be in favor of is um, breaking up California. <laughs> I think California is the typical example of a state that has just a massive population, and only two senators. Um, what do you think about the merits of that idea? And then is it even remotely possible? Well, I don't think this is this is where my anti-polarization side kicks in very strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't love that the will of the people can be thwarted by a Senate minority in a lot of cases, uh, mm-hmm. particularly when I think, like something like climate change, I think is a very urgent matter, matter. And the fact that we haven't been able to get stuff done on it, largely because of the filibuster and the structure of the Senate is a, is a serious problem. It's not just a theoretical problem. Uh, and so I understand the impetus on the left to say, look, we got, a, we got an existential planetary threat here. Stop worrying about your norms <laughs> and your rules and get something done on this. And, and, and you know, the I, I have a get her done Machiavellian side too that yep. that is kind of sympathetic to that. Uh, but if you bend the rules or manipulate the rules in that way, say, well, I'm going to make DC a state, and I'm going to. I mean, if there are concern, there are liberals that say, let's break up California and get you know eight Democratic senators out of out mm-hmm. of California, um, as, and let's let's get Guam and the Virgin Islands and, yeah. and Puerto Rico and the whole thing. <clears throat> if um, if you did stuff that way, <clears throat> the pendulum will swing and Republicans might reciprocate very forcefully. Sure. And the most clear example of this is in Australia, where, because there it's the, it's, the, it's the Labor Party and the Liberal Party, and the Liberal Party is the Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, Labor was in charge. 
know, they, they have a parliamentary government. They don't, they don't, they don't have filibusters. It's, it's one party rule at, at a time. And it, when one party loses, they lose completely. The other party, right. you know, gets, gets full control. Labor Party passes the carbon tax. Immediately, the Liberal Party says this is a disaster. It's going to bankrupt the country. They run on that in the next election. They win on that pledge and they immediately repeal it. So if you don't have that bipartisan buy-in, the the policy doesn't sustain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if you're going to get your way through all of these manipulations of the rules, well, yeah, it might be easier to pass things, but also easier to repeal things. Sure. You pack the court today, they'll pack the court tomorrow. And then nothing, and it, it goes beyond just sort of not winning. You've now destabilized your entire system of government. There, mm-hmm. Nothing is secure. Nothing is stable. No one can look ahead two to four years and know what the world's going to look like anymore. Uh, so I don't have a problem with expanding the center, expanding the court, so long as there is bipartisan right. buy-in for it. Right. If it's done in a way where it's not one side trying to get a artificial edge over the other that isn't going to cause a polarizing backlash, then great. You sure. know, there, there's, there's no magic to the numbers. Sure. Yeah, I think I, I don't know how Republicans would perceive breaking up California, but it was the one thing that I could imagine um, being sort of a it's not exactly a structural reform, but um, something well, it depends, that, where, depends where you I, draw the lines. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that's another point too. It wouldn't necessarily be, you know, adding eight Democratic senators. I think, you know, who knows what um, it would end so up the, the, like. The point about this because I, I talk about gerrymandering a lot because mm-hmm. um, there's it's definitely taken root on the left that Republicans have artificially augmented their power through gerrymandering, which doesn't speak to the Electoral College or the Senate. It's really, mm-hmm. it's the House and, and state legislatures, right? Um, and you look at the House popular vote over the last 10 years. So these get, you know, this these get redrawn after censuses. So the census happens on the 10s and then the redrawing happens on the 12s. So mm-hmm. the 22s, the 32s, et cetera. Um, so after Republicans got a, got a, the upper hand for 2012, you have in the House in 2012 and 2014, 2016, um, at, at, least, at least two out of those three, I got to double check my numbers, but there are times when, they got way more seats than they got in the House popular vote. And I think in one case, they could even lost the popular vote and had the most seats. Mm-hmm. Um, and this really drove the left up the wall. That this is this is complete bastardization of what you know, the House is supposed to be. Right. Uh, but in 2018 and 2020, the Democrats won a number of seats pretty much in line with their share of the popular vote. Uh, and so that says to me that gerrymandering has limited effectiveness. You can draw the lines in a special way that it might work out for you that election. Yeah. But, but if you draw them in such a way that it's such a narrow majority, you lose it in a blue wave. Well, that's the other thing. If you, you, you spread yourself thin, mm-hmm. you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to a wave. Uh, people die. <laughs> people die and young people come up. That uh, That's a change. Uh, and people move around. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, these things are not, they're, they're literally not set in stone. And you might think you're doing something cheeky that's going to give you an edge, but it's going to give you a very you know, temporary edge. Uh, if you don't govern well, <laughs> if you don't do things that people like, right. you could draw the lines in the world, it's not going to save you. Sure. All right. So closing question is uh, referencing the name of the show. Can you tell me about a time when you heard an argument from your critics and you thought, you know, you might have a point? Um, I, I mean, I'm sure 
that's happened. I mean, I, I, I mean, especially because I go into a lot of arguments these days, not arguing I am 100% right sure. and you're 100% sure. wrong. So uh, I'm often talking about, hey, you know, this is what I think. This is what I, th I think there's an argument here. Um, and my reaction to other people is say, you may be right, but accept the possibility that you might not be. Mm -hmm. And here's the information that we don't have yet that might help adjudicate this uh, go, going forward. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I don't have off the top of my head, like a discrete example sure. uh, to give you, but as you know, you know, I do talk to conservative Matt Lewis on the DMZ right. on, on a daily basis, on a, on a weekly basis. Now, now it's often more than once a week because we're doing some zooms. Uh, and, you know, the combination of that, as well, you know, I had a change in my workplace status. I was working for a progressive outfit for a long time, and mm -hmm. uh, they got taken over by uh, by a, what appears to me to be a socialist group, and they didn't care for my freelance writing, and they let me go. Um, and so not having any, you know, paymaster right now, mm -hmm. uh, which is a lot, lot less lucrative, but yep. <laughs> intellectually free. More freeing, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, that, that has allowed me to open my mind up a little bit more and just not always take the character of the right as is and not take a simplistic view of progressive positions at face value either. Mm -hmm. And so that just puts me in a more intellectually flexible place where I'm, I'm always willing to hear people out. Right. I mean, if, you, if you follow me on Twitter, you know, I mean, I, I, I have my obnoxious moments to be sure. <laughs> um, but uh, I try not to, I mean, unless I really have a definitive argument to make, like, sure. look, I have the, I have the evidence and you are just not correct here. Sure. Um, I'm generally going to stop short of saying I am right and you are wrong. Yep. Yep. I'm going to say, this is what I'm looking at and, and shaping my view. Um, but let's try to take, I mean, like take, talking about bipartisanship, for example. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I for, I, I wasn't a big promoter of bipartisanship for, for a long time. But when I looked at the Obama record, and, there, and I think people on both sides, Republicans say Obama was not bipartisan, and Democrats say Obama was too bipartisan. He got and he got suckered. He got sucker punched for it. Yeah. Uh, and I said, well, look at the record here. Like, look at the here's what actually passed, and here are the Republican votes that came along with it in almost every case except for Obamacare. Uh, let's try to square these data points and make sense of it all. Uh, maybe it's not going to come up with a very patent clear answer, but um, if you if you cherry pick out some of these data points, you're you're missing the complete story. And so that, that's that's why I, I try to encourage as much as possible. Say, look, we got multiple data points here; they don't all line up perfectly. Let's try to grapple with how they how we can the complexity them. of the story. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, Bill Share, thank you so much for coming on. You might have a point. Great to talk to you. That's all for today. If you have any feedback, whether it's positive or negative, I'd be glad to hear it. You can find out how to reach me in the show notes. Thanks for listening and take care.